Welcome to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I'm your host, Rupert Sparling, and this week we'll explore the role women play in peacebuilding efforts across the world. War is the father of all, so said Heraclitus, and in doing so he typified an age-old view of warfare and its resolution as essentially concerning men. In this podcast, I want to explore the very real role women currently have in peacebuilding efforts across the world, and the roles they should have. To learn more about this issue, I spoke to Professor Anne-Marie Goetz, who is Clinical Professor at the Centre for Global Affairs at New York University. I also spoke to Professor Elizabeth Porter at South Australia University, and who was formerly Director of INCOR. International Conflict Research at the University of Ulster, Northern Ireland. Finally, I discussed peace building with Dr. Tania Paffenholz, who is the Director of the Inclusive Peace and Transition Initiative at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. Dr. Paffenholz is internationally renowned for her academic work on and practitioner support to peace and transition processes around the world, focusing on mediation, peace building, process design, inclusion and participation, as well as the conditions under which these processes produce sustainable outcomes. Let's turn to the first interview now. In order to get a better understanding of what exactly peace building involved, I asked Professor Goetz what sort of activities the term covers. Right. Peace building is a term that actually is used very loosely and it's been used for a long time without a lot a lot of clarity on what it means. Often it's just it just refers to the period between the end of conflict and the first or second post-conflict election when things seem stable. But that's very misleading because peace building is something that happens at all times in all countries at all kinds of levels of society and the best kind of peace building is um, establishing long-term methods of resolving conflict sustainably in order to prevent uh, any kind of violent expression of conflicts over ideas or resources or rights. And so peace building is really an ongoing process that's very broad and is sometimes sometimes sounds very little different from basically democratization and social inclusion. Um, in the UN, peace building became a distinct focus around which institutions have been created really since the year 2000 and in particular since the 2005 World Summit and Kofi Annan's great statement arising from that, which recognized that the UN itself lacks adequate practical tools to promote peace building, especially in fragile states. Tools that would prevent conflict from breaking out and tools that would enable societies to recover as rapidly and sustainably as possible. And in order to start addressing that gap in the UN's own response, the Peace Building Commission was established in 2005 and the Peace Building Support Office and the Peace Building Fund, which is a rapid reaction fund available to the Secretary General to stimulate peace building initiatives urgently and quickly in places that need it. So what is, what is peace building practically? What does that mean on the ground? Probably the most difficult aspect of peace building, the one that is kind of the toughest nut to crack and the most important is conflict resolution in the form of political dialogue between belligerent parties and conflict anticipation and prevention in the sense of early warning systems and picking up on latent conflicts or simmering conflicts that might break out into violence. 
So, you know, one, one form of, of conflict resolution is, of course, formal peace talks. But that's different from ongoing dialogue between different communities and between different, different interest groups and so on. So an aspect of peace building, which is, which is very important and still, as I said, a tough nut to crack, still not, not very well resolved, is setting up institutions to encourage peaceful conversations and dialogues over social differences. So this can be things like ecumenical groups. For example, in Sierra Leone, there's a lot of ecumenical groups you know, seeking to build harmony between different religious denominations or different religious institutions. There's also, of course, local government, consultation over decision-making, and so on. And so therefore, I mean, as you can tell, it's a very broad category, ongoing conflict resolution and early warning. And why is it difficult to get women involved in these areas of peacebuilding? The difficulty that we faced around engaging women in these processes is that because they are often not the most visible social, political, or economic leaders, they are very frequently excluded from these kinds of forms of political dialogue, which can sometimes mean even engagement by external actors to sort of trigger a political conversation. So that's that's a, a huge problem that we've been addressing, uh, that the international community has been addressing. For example, UN Women um, has sought to engage women in ecumenical dialogue, interreligious conversations, has sought to build the, the size and strength of women's organizations in fragile states through funding, uh, through organizational development of women's organizations so that they can engage in conflict resolution at the community level. Early warning systems are basically systems of data collection on things that are considered to be good indicators of a likely conflict breaking out. So these could be indicators of things like uh, prevalence of small arms in the population or uh, increases in levels of child mortality and child malnutrition and infant mortality, um, increases in the levels of maternal mortality. What else are early warning signals? Oh, um, you know, sudden appearance of released prisoners or sudden movements, obviously movements of um, armed actors, non-state armed actors, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that when it comes to early warning systems, probably none of them work terribly well. And the ones that have worked well are not recognized as such because it's very hard to give credit to, to a counterfactual, to something that didn't happen, or mm. to something that stopped something from happening, which is a great frustration in conflict prevention. But I would also say that in that particular area, there's been a lot of progress in engaging women, because women, especially at the community level, are often able to identify signs of instability that are not always on the radar of early warning systems. For example, in Sierra Leone, Women um, in the early 2000s reported noticing that young men had more disposable income for alcohol, uh, sex workers, and cigarettes than they had before with no visible sign of uh, an additional source of income. So it was clear that income was coming from somewhere to finance conspicuous consumption by young men. So that kind of observation actually could have helped to alert people that there was some mobilization going on. In the Solomon Islands, women 
have, have noticed that there's a scarcity of forest produce like berries and bark and leaves in the markets usually around the time when there's like some kind of instability looming for example release of prisoners or sort of a collection of armed men in forests usually means that then women start stop collecting forest produce and you notice this in the market so early warning signs can be signals can be um, gendered i then spoke to professor elizabeth porter I've asked her about the participation of women currently in the political dialogue stage of peacebuilding, but in particular, I began by asking her about UN Resolution 1325. Why is it quite so important? Because it really is an incredibly significant resolution. It was the first Security Council resolution to accept the difference that armed conflict has on women and girls. It was a 2000 resolution. It was unanimous and it's a significant one because really it came about by international lobbying. It's become the most translated resolution and that again is because of the incredible body of international human rights lobbyists and um, who really are wanting to make this resolution understandable because it's really become the chief advocacy tool for women's rights groups in lobbying to increase women's participation because that that was one of the chief pillars of the resolution is to increase participation so really all academic work scholarship around this issue now uses 1325 as in in some ways uh, as a basis of discussion the basis of measurement and certainly there are weaknesses with the resolution in terms of lack of implementation nevertheless it's the starting point in many ways for much of the discussion so if i could contextualize it like that so look in terms of some statistics certainly before 2000, before the resolution 1325, women were active, well, (laughs) present, shall I say, in Guatemala, but one woman only, one woman only, her name was Luz Mendes, and I've met her, so I've had that privilege, and also in Northern Ireland, the peace agreement had two women signatories only, and I'll come back later to the rationale for why it's significant, but it is important to note that pre-1325, there, there were women involved, but women involved only in such a small level. And then since 2000, in certain peace agreements, such as in Somalia, Cote d'Ivoire, Nepal, Philippines and Central African Republic, no women at all, no women at all. And then more than 10% in a few, such as DRC, Liberia, Uganda, Kenya, Honduras, and the Philippines. So overall, this is United Nations Women 2012 statistics, women constitute only 2.4% of chief mediators, 3.7% of witnesses, 4% of actual signatories, and 9% of the negotiating teams. That really is appallingly low. What are the obstacles? What's what's preventing women from getting into these key roles? The obstacles are massive. There is still the notion that the men who create war 
are the ones who need to make the decisions. But if they're men who have known about creating a war and creating antagonism, why would anybody assume they also know about peace? There's lots of issues of resources that often they hold peace agreements outside of the country. It's always assumed that men will be able to find those resources that they can up and leave their family behind. Many women don't have that the ability just to leave their children or their, their, their family's orphaned children. They often don't have the finances to do it. There is still the notion that women who have gained leadership positions during the war, because that, that often happens when, when men are away, women have to pick up the pieces, just as in the West in World War Two, World War One, women held those positions. And then when men came back from the war, it was assumed that women had to drop those positions. The same principle happens in conflict zones. So many women pick up leadership positions. And then when men, when the combatants return, it's assumed that they can drop those. So the obstacles are, are, are social, they're cultural, they're economic, they're political, they're often religious, so mm. sanctions against women taking leadership positions. And then curiously, and this is something I'm exploring a little bit at the moment, curiously some women prefer to work at the informal level because they're really good at working across coalitions, even coalitions of differences. So even where you have significant ethnic or religious or cultural differences, women often are willing to not put those differences aside. You can't do that. Your, your ethnic identity and positioning is really crucial. But they're willing to say, look, I share the same burden as you of needing to find water and and." food for my children, wanting a better future for them, what can we do to come together to do that? Um, so many, many women have, have continued to work across enormous um, differences that often men are not willing to do so. Now, I'm not saying that all women can do this, and I'm not saying that no men can do this. I'm just saying that Generally speaking, there are many coalitions of women who, who work across those differences and often strategically think that if they are in a less formal position, that, that they can almost take more, more risks in doing so also. So it, it is a curious thing of many, some women actually preferring to work strategically at the informal level. After hearing what Professor Porter had to say about participation of women in formal peace processes, I spoke to Dr. Tania Paffenholz, who has conducted an extensive multi-year research project on peace processes in practice, and which comprised over 40 case studies covering 34 countries and ranged from 1989 to 2014. I asked her first whether she had found that the inclusion of women correlated with a higher rate of successful peace negotiation. So what we found in the correlations we did is that there was no correlation between more women, more peace, we want to make it simple, but that it was much more complex in terms of under which conditions women influenced the process, and then the more influence they had, the more you had peace agreements signed and implemented. And I think that's like why a lot of practitioners basically uh, fell in love with our research. Because it's a nice sort of justification to say, oh, it's not just about participation, it's about influence. And mm. we had um, 
addressed, our research was addressed uh, last week in New York in the side event on human peace and security in the General Assembly, a high-level event with the executive director of UN Women and uh, people on this level from uh, the Department of Political Affairs and also all the diplomatic missions were there. And our research was quoted all the time and everybody said, it's not only about participation, it's about influence. I, mm. I doubt that anybody has a clue what influence means, but we can at least say it has now, our research has informed and influenced the discourse. Excellent, thank you very much. Um, and that brings me on to my next question, which is, I suppose my topic presupposes a unity in that women are unified actors in peacemaking processes. Did your research for the most part reveal unity among women's groups or women participating as a, a unified actor in their own right? Uh, rarely. I mean, it's usually women are as diverse as society, yes, as quite. society but women even more because they're more than 50% of the population. Mm. So why should they have the same opinion? I mean, so uh, that would be not logic. I think what happens is that the international community works often together, particularly with more women rights organizations and organ or women, yeah, or feminist organizations. And these were clear lobby advocacy organizations that have a united voice towards change and democratization and women rights. But reality is most women in a country would not be part of these civil society activists. So if you say now women should participate at the table, the, the international community thinks, of course, it's these women who are pro-democracy, pro pro-women rights, pro-human rights, and these are the ones we support. But then if you have, for example, a quota, you will get all sorts of women, and most of them will be like in the Constituent Assembly, for example, in Nepal, where you had one of the highest women representations and peace processes, like um, there was a 30% quota. Then these women, uh, they are nominated by their parties. So they mainly represent party politics, and they're there because they're politicians and not because they're women. So the thing is, you can't expect from them to just do the lobby for the agenda of women rights organizations. So what we found in the research is when, like Nepal is an interesting case, these women then at a certain stage realized there is a citizen law that will disadvantage women and children. So we should all come together and vote against this because then they would have one third of the votes. So, but what happened is that they never managed to agree because party politics and party political loyalties were sort of higher than being a woman and even lobbying against your own kind of interest. So finally, they couldn't agree. Contrary to this, same happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the peace agreement, where the last day before the peace agreement was to be signed, there was a disagreement among the main male elites in that case from the conflict parties. And the women decided across parties, no matter what they were in terms of affiliations and opinions, to block the room of the negotiations inside and let the men not out before they sign. So in this case, the, un the unification worked. But what we've seen is very strong kind of women coalitions often work either from outside, like in Liberia, the mobilization of women movements uh, that put pressure, um, or women activists that have a voice at the table. For example, you had... Um, in the Yemeni uh, national dialogue, you would have not only a 30% quota, but you have a, a separate women delegation. 
and usually what happens is the quota women are the ones from the parties, which you can criticize as being maybe one-sided, but it's also fair enough, because why should not women have party affiliations and party opinions? Mm. And if you want the activists in, you better get them if you have them either in special commissions or you have them in a women-only delegation, because that's more often than sort of selected from women groups. How have actors influenced a, the agenda of the peace agreements and the negotiations? That means independently of the outcome, mm-hmm. um, you look into how have they have they influenced the agenda. For example, if um, has there what has been done before a lot was like how many gender provisions are there, and uh, what we found is that women do not only lobby for gender provisions. They also lobbied for very hardcore issues like um, land reform or governments of national unity. Mm. Like that. But you can only do that if you do process tracing. That's what we did. That you really look into how did they do it and did it make it into the agreement. So that's what we that's what we look. So we look at first what have they lobbied for and how did they lobby. Uh, so that's and then did it make it into the agreement. So. And then was this what the women lobbied for ever implemented, which is also different things. After what Tanya Pavanolta told me about quotas, I then asked Professor Anne-Marie Goetz about the effectiveness of electoral quotas, which are designed to get women into parliaments and representative bodies as a post-conflict resolution tool. It used to be considered that the most sort of high-visibility constructive thing you could do after conflict is quickly organize an election and and ensure that it's peaceful and so on. And and that's still extremely important, and I'm not minimizing its importance. It's just that what we've seen is that in in societies where other aspects of peace building haven't been dealt with, elections can actually open the door to a lot more conflict. And we've seen that Mm. in Ivory Coast and, and Kenya, and it looks like right now in Kenya, the elections are shaping up once again to be extremely unstable, which is very worrying. So elections are important, but they have to be accompanied with the kind of peace-building investments that I mentioned. Women's engagement in in post-conflict elections is highly fraught because there's all kinds of reasons. Women have not been effectively integrated to the body politic in, in the past. In many countries, they are often not sort of at the leadership of political parties, although they're often very important at the base. And, you know, there's a lot of countries in fragile states have a lot of catching up to do in terms of education and um, encouraging women to run for public office. Political parties are often busy paying debts to important men rather than cultivating women leaders. Okay, so what does this mean? Take a country like Mali, which actually, you know, from the early 90s was on a sort of seemingly stable, secure path to really kind of impressive uh, democratization. And then it all fell apart in 2012 with the um, the uh, sort of um, rebellion in the north and, so, and the influence, of course, uh, Al-Qaeda-linked groups in the north. Um, in the elections organized rather swiftly in 2013 after the stabilization mission and the, uh, the work of the French and the UN to stabilize the north of the country, it was revealed, and this was no surprise to me, but this is the case in many conflict and fragile states, it was revealed that very few women 
had identity cards and you can't register to vote unless you have an identity card mm. and of course uh, on top of all of that there was a huge amount of population flight from the north so uh, enabling refugees to vote became another issue and you know lots and lots of those refugees were women possibly the majority women and girls you know, before we get to the issue of quotas, there's serious challenges in ensuring that women have identity cards in the first place, which often they they don't have. Men tend to because they engage in more travel, more trade activity, etc. They tend to need identity cards more often. Women women don't. In many North African and Middle Eastern countries, women and girls are registered on the identity cards of their fathers or husbands. And that means they don't have their own personal identity card, which means, of course, a certain level of control over the way that they might vote. In, Liber in uh, Libya, after 2011, this became a really serious issue because women didn't have independent identity cards. What do you think the international community should do to encourage women to take on these roles in peacebuilding processes? Okay, so on the 25th of October, Russia, which is chair of the council that month, next month, will be... Um, or in the month of October, we'll be hosting a conversation about women, peace, and security. Mm -hmm. These annual discussions of women, peace, and security are a great opportunity to highlight the road traveled and the distance still to go. And with regard to implementing the UN's resolutions on women, peace, and security, and specifically the Security Council's resolutions on women, peace, and security, I would say that there has been a more robust response and by robust response, I mean establishment of institution, provision of resources, and actions on the ground. There's been a more robust response in relation to addressing sexual violence in conflict than there has been on other aspects of the women, peace, and security agenda, especially women's voice in conflict resolution and resources for women's recovery by which I mean income, healthcare, justice, education, and so on. I believe it's time to stop looking at women as victims, which is, of course, a comfortable conceptual framework mm. for many actors, national and international. And it's the easiest way to be looking at women in the context of war is like, oh, victims, especially victims of sexual violence rather than looking at women as leaders, peace builders, and leaders, and, and leaders not just politically, but economically and socially. And that final thought wraps up our podcast for this week. If you would like to hear the full, original interviews for each of our guests, the links are in the description of the podcast. If you want to share your own thoughts on this topic, we are always accepting submissions to our blog at oxersoc.com. Thank you so much to all of our guests, to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, the University of Kent, and John Hopkins, and to podcastthemes.com for our, our intro and outro music. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Until next time, I've been Rupert Sparling. <laughs>